Chapter 14 of Boston Blackie by Jack Boyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mystery of the S.S. Humboldt. What followed seemed a nightmare of unreality. A fourth form, apparently peering from nowhere, passed swiftly down the companionway and vanished. The masked victor staggered to his feet and, seemingly intent on making more noise and confusion, raised the unconscious Englishman and dashed him against the door of the purser's cabin, which burst open. Screams and shouts came from behind stateroom doors. Mary darted back to her own cabin, slipped her revolver beneath her pillow, and switched on the lights just as the door was thrown open and Miss Nina Francisco entered, her clubbed revolver still in her hand. The girl shot the bolt in the door, while the uproar in the companionway increased, and running men poured down from the upper deck. Without a glance toward Mary, Nina opened a grip, dropped the revolver into it, and locked it. Then she drew on a pair of stockings, slipped her feet into shoes, and with a calm, quick glance around the room, as if to make sure she had forgotten nothing essential, threw open the door of the cabin and began to scream hysterically. The companionway was lighted now, and ship's officers and seamen, aided by the shaken and white-faced secretary, were raising the senseless form of Sir Arthur Cumberland. Mary, peering over Nina's shoulders, saw that the door of the strong-room was open. Blood splotches were everywhere, and Purser Jessen was loudly calling for the ship's surgeon. The doctor and the captain arrived together. "'What's happened here, Mr. Jessen?' demanded McNaughton, gazing dumbfoundedly at the bloody, unconscious passenger, the open door of the strong-room, the splintered woodwork. "'Blamed if I know, sir,' gasped his subordinate. "'I was asleep when I heard a crash in the companionway. There was a shot, then another crash. Then this man came through the door of my cabin, tearing away the hinges.' The captain turned to his first officer. "'Put a guard before every stateroom on the steamer,' he commanded. Let no one leave a cabin until I give permission. Move this crowd back, each to his stateroom, motioning to the half-dressed passengers who were pouring out of a dozen doors. Doctor, take the injured man into Mr. Jessen's cabin and attend him, while I find out what's happening on this ship. As the passageway was cleared, the captain picked up from the floor the padlock that had hung on the treasure room door. It had been opened without leaving even a mutilating scratch. "'The strong-room padlock unlocked!' he gasped. "'Look!' cried Jessen, pointing to an object that lay beneath the fragment of splintered wood. The captain picked it up, turning it over and over in his hand. It was the exact duplicate of the strong-room lock. Nearby lay a revolver with blood-stained handle. "'Follow me, Mr. Jessen,' McNaughton commanded. Together they entered the strong-room, piled high with the treasure-chests, and studied it walls, ceiling, and floor. Nothing appeared amiss. One by one they examined the seals on the chests. All were intact. "'They must have been interrupted by Sir Arthur as they were entering,' suggested the purser. "'Not as they were entering, but after they had entered,' corrected the captain, sniffing the air. "'Why, sir?' inquired Jessen. "'Cigarette smoke inside,' explained McNaughton, still sniffing. They've broken into the Humboldt strong-room, though it can't be done, and they even dared to keep their cigarettes going while they did it. Thank heavens Cumberland heard them, for it's evident he must have interrupted the thieves or they would not have struck him down. 
McNaughton pushed his way into Jesson's room, where the surgeon was dressing an ugly wound over Cumberland's temple, with the secretary aiding him. "'Is he badly hurt, doctor?' McNaughton demanded. The surgeon shook his head doubtfully. "'I can't say yet,' he replied. "'He took a hard blow. He may come around all right shortly, and he may have a fractured skull, which, from a blow just there, might mean cerebral hemorrhage.' He may be unconscious for hours. Or even days, said the doctor. What do you know of this? McNaughton asked, turning to MacDonald. I was asleep, the little Scotchman answered readily. I heard nothing until a shot awakened me. When I got the lights on and the door opened, Sir Arthur was in the purser's arms, wounded. I didn't hear him leave our cabin, and I don't know who struck him, though it's plain he interrupted a robbery of your strong room. One by one the captain visited the nearby cabins, questioning the passengers. None gave information of real value. All had been awakened by the noise in the companionway or the subsequent shot. As they rushed from their staterooms they had seen the purser raising the injured man within the wrecked cabin door. No one else was in sight except the injured man's secretary, who appeared from his cabin after the trouble was over. McNaughton came finally to the stateroom of Miss Francisco and Mary. "'What did you ladies see of this?' he inquired courteously. "'You first, Miss Whitney.' "'I saw more than she did, Captain, for I was first at the door,' interrupted Miss Francisco quickly. I was awake when I heard the crash in the passageway. Then there was a shot. I jumped from my berth and turned on our lights. I heard a stateroom door near ours bang shut as I threw open our door. I saw the purser with the injured man in his arms. I'm afraid that's all I know. Is poor Sir Arthur badly hurt, Captain? She spoke with such well-feigned solicitude that Mary, remembering the blows struck in the dark, wondered at the perfection of her duplicity. "'Was the door you heard close to the left or to the right of yours?' asked the captain, seizing the one important bit of information in the girl's story. "'I don't know. I only know it was very close. Almost adjoining ours, I judge.' "'Can you add anything to what Miss Francisco has told?' asked McNaughton of Mary. "'I heard the shot and the noise, and I think, as Miss Francisco told you, that I heard a cabin door nearby close immediately afterward, Mary said, following the other's story with exactness. That's all I can tell you. As she heard Nina Francisco's glib invention, Mary, knowing that Blackie's stateroom was far away and around the turn in the companionway, decided instantly to cooperate it. Wittingly or unwittingly, that untruth furnished an alibi for the man whose safety mattered to her. Why Nina Francisco had struck the blow that ended the battle, Mary could not guess. Why she now imperiled herself by a bold fabrication was an even deeper mystery. "'Thank you, ladies. I've worked before me that can't wait,' said the captain, bowing himself out hurriedly. As the door closed behind him, Nina and Mary looked at each other with silent lips but questioning eyes. "'Well, that's over, thank you goodness, said Nina at last, sighing with relief. She turned to the dressing table and dabbed her powder puff over her nose. You're not a bad sport after all, Miss Whitney, she concluded after a long silence. I beg your pardon for what I've been thinking about you. And you're... I don't know what, said Mary. 
"'Just a woman, my dear,' said Nina with softened voice. "'A woman willing to dare anything for the man for whom she can't help caring.' They smiled across the table at each other, and though neither asked a question or offered further explanation, the strange events of the night dissipated for the first time the hostility that had divided them. Morning found Captain McNaughton sitting in his cabin, perplexed furrows wrinkling his brow. The steamer had been searched from hurricane deck to keel without result. Not the slightest additional wisp of evidence came to light to justify even suspicion. The duplicate padlock, the revolver with one empty chamber, and the injured passenger were the only bits of evidence left by those who had attempted the daring raid on the treasure. Investigation showed the electric alarm wires leading into the strong room had been cut, and the wainscoting that hid them replaced without leaving even a betraying speck of sawdust. The lead offered by the closing cabin door heard by Miss Francisco proved absolutely barren, for the most minute search of all cabins on the treasure room companionway revealed absolutely nothing. The duplicate padlock was a duplicate in outward appearance only. It could be opened with the simplest of master keys. At daylight, a seaman found a pocket flash lamp rolling on the upper deck with the movement of the ship. It might have been tossed from any one of a dozen cabins. McNaughton locked it away with a padlock and the gun and ascended to the wireless room, where he dictated a message to his company managers telling all that had happened. Until Sir Arthur Cumberland recovered his senses, the injured man's condition was unchanged. The captain had done all that seemed possible. One thought comforted him. The treasure room gold had not been disturbed, for in the search of the Humboldt, which had included the personal baggage of passengers, officers, and members of the crew, no possible hiding place for great yellow bars two feet long and weighing thirty or more pounds each had been overlooked. In addition, the chest seals were all intact. The Humboldt was backing slowly from the dock at Victoria, a special stop necessitated by a shipment of British Columbian freight, and had begun the short run down the Sound to Seattle when Mary received a message that brought color back to her white face. A man passed behind her as she sat in the deck chair and deftly dropped a slip of paper into her lap. Turning as she hid the note with her hand, she recognized Blackie's pal, K.Y. Lewes. Concealing the note in her book, she read at a glance its five words, words that lifted the load that burdened her heart. Follow original instructions. Don't worry, was written, and the writing was Boston Blackie's. Somehow, inconceivably, but surely, she knew he had solved the problem of escape at the Seattle Wharf. She sprang to her feet, and, unutterably content, tossed the now twisted bit of paper overboard, and watched it float away on the waters of the sound as she gaily joined the throng on the decks. During that last day at sea, Purser Dave Jessen watched in vain for an opportunity to speak alone with Miss Marie Whitney, to tell her he loved her, to ask her to be his wife. Though he admitted to himself his presumption, and hoping that she might feel for him even a tithe of the great tenderness in his heart, he did hope, for he was a man and in love. But never for an instant during the day was Miss Whitney alone. Among the score of vacation trippers who boarded the Humboldt at Victoria for the return trip to Seattle was a party of five, 
four modestly dressed girls chaperoned by an agreeable white-haired mother, one of whom proved to be a former schoolmate of Miss Whitney's. All day the new-frowned friends monopolized her attention, and it was not until the nearing lights of Seattle threw their glare against the southern sky that Jessen found the opportunity he sought. He was distributing the passenger's baggage, which had been entrusted to the safety of the strong room, baggage that was removed from the stronghold under the personal supervision of Captain McNaughton. Accompanied by subordinates carrying her trunk, he knocked at the girl's door and found her alone. The men deposited the trunk and departed, but Jessen lingered in the open doorway. Mary looked up interrogatively. Marie! he said, stepping to her side with a longing, half-fearful look into the face upturned to his. "'I love you. Forgive me, only a poor sailor, for daring to tell you, for even daring to hope you would listen. But because I love you, and you are leaving the Humboldt tonight, I must speak now. Marie, can you, will you be my wife?' There was simple sincerity and great love in the words the voice and the frank eyes that looked into hers as she slowly shook her head. "'Don't, Mr. Jessen,' Mary said gently. "'I like you. I admire you. But what you ask, it can't be.' The bronzed face paled under its tan, and the blue eyes contracted under the numbing pain of a precious hope suddenly uprooted. "'There is someone else?' he asked unsteadily. "'Yes,' said Mary, truly sorry she must so wound the love offered her. "'Forgive me, Mr. Jessen,' she added, laying a small hand on the man's arm. Jessen caught and pressed it, and hurried with averted face from the cabin as women's voices sounded in the companionway. End of Chapter 14